Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic overseeing our TOSIG Phase 1 and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Paolo Kami, a member of the lymphoma program and associate BMT director for cell therapy at the TOSIG Cancer Center here at Cleveland Clinic. He's here today to talk to us about cell therapy. So welcome, Paolo. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. So maybe to start, um, give us a little background. Like, what, What's your role here at Cleveland Clinic? So I'm primarily a lymphoma doctor. I see all kinds of patients with lymphoma, lymphoid malignancies from CLL to Burkitt lymphoma, so from the most illness to most aggressive. And we treat them throughout the different stages of their disease. And, you know, as it happens, as a lymphoma doctor, it kind of became, I tend to say, a reluctant transplanter and ended up doing stem cell transplant. And then, you know, as cell therapy is being developed, I've been doing cell therapy for my patients. Um, so I, you know, offer them the different versions of cell therapy that we have here for, for our patients. Okay. Well, we have a wide range of people who might be listening. So let's take a step back. And, and when we talk about cell therapy, what does that mean? What is cell therapy? So cell therapy is giving using cells for treating somebody's disease. Uh, in general, uh, you probably could say that the historic version of cell therapy is a allogeneic transplant where you're really replacing the whole immune system of a patient to use those cells and the, res- the immune response of those cells to combat their cancer. Um, and usually that's been traditionally more effective in myeloid disorders and primarily leukemias, including lymphoid leukemias. And it's been used slowly, surely less in lymphomas where we've kind of had a more effective therapies over time. Um, autologous stem cell transplant is really using your patient's stem cells to be able to rescue them after you give them a high dose therapy. Um, so it's not really a pure cell therapy, it's just stem cell rescue. And now that we've had a new, more advanced therapist, I probably would say that cell therapy is using uh, primarily the patient's lymphocytes that are modified ex vivo to uh, have some type of anti tumor response. Uh, we can also select some uh, lymphocytes uh, to be specific to certain cancers, like selecting uh, tumor infiltrating lymphocytes for, for mostly solid tumors. But in the lymphoma world, we're using CAR T cells, which is just taking T cells from a patient, modifying them outside of the patient's body, so ex vivo, with um, a viral transfer uh, me- method that it can in- introduce a gene that allows them to express a receptor that attacks the lymphoma and have an anti-tumor response. And and those things like CAR-T therapies are now um, commercially available. They're actually FDA approved, right? Yes, there's actually five different CAR-T products approved. There's uh, there's two targets now currently approved. There's CD19, which is commonly on B cells, and there's BCMA as a target that is in myeloma. Um, there's three products that perform lymphoma with multiple indications. There's something called the names are crazy, but one of them is called Axicaptagen Cell. We abbreviated it as Axicel, and the commercial name of that is Jascarta. The second one is called Tisagenleclocell. Uh, I'm just bragging here because I, I can say <laughs> and then we abbreviated it as Tisacel. And the third one for lymphoma is called Lysocaptagen Maraleocell, um, which is called Lysocell. There's a little variation on the first one, something called Brexucaptagen Autolocell, which is a modification of the original, but 
those three cell therapy products um, target CD19 and they're approved. Uh, all three are approved for diffuse large piece of lymphoma and after at least two lines of therapy. Um, there's one of them that's approved uh, for, uh, for mantle cell lymphoma. Uh, and now one of them is also approved for follicular. So we can treat patients with follicular lymphoma, diffuse large piece of lymphoma, in some variations, including primary mediastinal and uh, mantle cell lymphoma. And as we look forward to those therapies, um, primarily looking for drugs that have better efficacy, better safety, or just more indications for other types of lymphoma? Well, I think that you're covering kind of all the aspects that are going to happen with, with CAR-Ts, right? I think you, you, at least the way I perceive it, and I think I'm not alone in, in thinking that we're going to see significant penetrance of different cell therapies. Uh, they're going to get, you know, to get to be used earlier. We're seeing now just recently, we had some press releases suggesting that earlier use of CAR-Ts may be more effective than, uh, than salvage chemotherapy for certain patients, for those who have refractory disease. Uh, so it is possible that we'll be seeing this in the second line now instead of the third or fourth line. But also you'll see more extended diagnosis. We've seen just uh, last uh, last week or a couple of weeks ago, we had a publication on ALL, so we will see approval probably of this in adult ALL. So we will see more be uh, more B cell malignancies, including some mature ones. I'm expecting other other lymphomas as well. And then the question is, we're going to see new targets. We just have BCMA approved for myeloma. Probably that will have another uh, product come using the same target. And probably other hematologic malignancies, I think, are the next step. So that presently penetrating more in lymphomas, going to myeloma. I think the next step will be uh, some of the myeloid disorders, possibly Hodgkin. And then, you know, the final frontier, probably, at least in the oncology world, is solid tumors, which are a little bit harder, but I think that's the kind of the next step. So tell us a little bit about that. Why are solid tumors a little more difficult um, to treat with these therapies? You know... Trying to avoid to make a joke about solid tumor oncologists, since I'm a hematologic malignancy guy, but um, it's okay. <laughs> but I would say that I mean it's probably mostly because the tumors are more complex. Um, the 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 microenvironmental uh, resistance is a resistance is a factor. So usually you would consider that the capacity of those cells to to serve as a single agent uh, and to overcome the resistance that the tumor is presenting. It's, it's bigger. So it's, that's why I think it's a little bit tougher for, uh, for cells to work on some of these diseases that have so many other cells surrounding myeloid suppressor cells, as well as, you know, some issues with, with, uh, with the capacity of the cells to even reach the tumor and the immune escape that happens at the microenvironmental level for, for the tumor itself. If we think back to lymphoma, most people, of course, are familiar with chemotherapy, maybe a little bit less. These have been around for a while, CAR-Ts and things, but maybe less familiar. What what are the, the primary advantages to using a cellular therapy compared to a, a chemotherapy? Well, I think you and I probably trained on the time of the cytotox 6. Maybe with a few with a few immunotherapeutic agents, for us, rituximab has been available for 20-plus years now. So we've been doing immunotherapy for a long time, and it's begun to be kind of widespread in many other diseases. Uh, cell therapies have a few important advantages. Probably one that's very relevant is a single course of treatment. So most patients that are getting CAR T cells 
um, with relatively high rates of response, 80% rates of response with you know, 40 plus percent patients staying in, in complete remission beyond a year for third, fourth line diffuse large B, so it's much better than before for a single course of treatment. So that's number one advantage is just one sitting. Um, the second advantage is that they're, even though they have specific toxicities, they tend to be well tolerated. And the majority of the toxicities are not what we're used to with cytotoxics. So the safety profile, and I think it's improving, but the safety profile is different than that of what we use with cytotoxics. I must say one therapy um, with an 80% response rate as a solid tumor guy, I'm a little jealous. I know, right? Um, and I think that it, it, it's been, it's been a, a change in how we look at our curves, right? You go and be even presenting... You go and present 40, 50% response rate for certain certain new drugs, single agents, and they're looked down upon. And and those are drugs that probably, you know, five, 10 years ago would be considered effect, you know, valuable assets. I think they still are. I think the question is, you know, how are all these new drugs that are coming up that have value as a single agent can be that maybe reach 40% on their own? How do we strategically use them to achieve the 80 or 90% response rate that we can do and sustain that response in the long term? Makes sense. So good efficacy, um, well tolerated. What are the drawbacks? Well, well, I'd say probably safety is still an issue. We're learning how to use them. Like with every every new drug and new drug category, you're learning the safety profile of them. The, these adoptive immunotherapy strategies, right, where you're modifying your cells to attack uh, the tumor, have a couple of things. One of them is because of the activation of the cells, um, you get a cytokine storm, what we call a cytokine release syndrome, which happens usually in the first couple of weeks, primarily the first week, which in the first few patients... Uh, as there's a cur- learning curve. It can be pretty scary when you're first doing it. Now I say probably most of the people who are doing CAR T's are used to them. They're used to detecting it earlier. Usually manifest with a fever for the first time, and you know we're very proactive about treating them. But people can get sick. People can get hypotensive. Can go to ICU. Can require mechanical ventilation. Now there's antidotes with the tocilizumab that we've been using, but but it can get, it can be scary. And then people can have a neurologic syndrome that I think is a little bit less well explained uh, that also happens earlier, say probably in the first, usually four to eight weeks, primarily in the first couple of weeks, the, the median is around seven days, depending on the product. And those patients we usually start with a dysgraphia with trouble writing, but they can have anywhere from a mild confusion to, to coma. It's reversible with steroids. Uh, in the majority of patients, there's some long-term side effects in the neurologic side. You occasionally see them, but not very frequent. And then you see some on-target effects, right? If you're using anti-CD19 targeting cells, these patients are going to have long-term hypogammaglobulinemia, which I, try, I challenge mostly people to say that as fast as I do. But also, you know, so people can have infrequent or rare infections that happen uh, or or a uncommon infections like PCP occasionally that happen several months down the road because you occasionally see patients that that have low antibody levels for you know beyond six months and some people are staying on on IVIG for a long term. And I'm guessing that like most adverse events that we get from our therapies, our ability to predict who's going to have cytokine release syndrome, neurotoxicity is relatively poor. Yeah. No, well, particularly you know with these drugs being you know. Best ten years and then less than five years in the market. I think we're learning um, 
that there are certain inflammatory markers that the patients bring with themselves um, that that predispose them to do this reaction. So it's not just the cells getting activated, it's also you know, the inflammatory milieu of the patient that leads them to have a more more aggressive uh, inflammatory response. Also, patients who have much more tumor bulk will have more, so we tend to choose patients with or debulk them before if we can. But I think it's it's part of the learning curve with a new drug, um, how to use them. And I didn't get to see rituximab when it was first used, but you know, people were having severe reactions, and now rituximab is given anywhere in the world. Nobody's really scared of it, and all these antibodies as well. So I think it's a matter of a learning curve that we'll reach with better results. So it sounds like with everything going on with these drugs and sort of the the observation and the potential, it sounds like these aren't easy to give. It sounds like there's probably a team approach. And what does that look like um, when we we treat patients? Who all gets involved? I think the same way you ask to oncologists, you get three opinions. In general, you go to different centers. They're being given different and or by a different team. I would probably say that the majority of the cell therapies being given around the bone marrow transplant and stem cell therapy groups, in part because of the experience that the groups have had with cell therapy, the side effects are, tend to have a little bit in common with what we do. Um, and that's how I say probably, and, and they started with hematologic malignancy. So I think it's been all around it. Uh, it, it usually, it, it requires uh, a, a inpatient unit, you're required to incorporate the ICU as a team, as a backup. Many places, including us, have ICU uh, protocols. They have been, in, engaged the team to know what to do with these patients kind of rapidly so you can inter- intervene upon them pretty quickly. But also once the patient goes home and if they have a side effect, you also need to engage the, the emergency room, give them a card and give them some documentation that if they're coming through, there's, there's certain things you need to do pretty quickly. So it really takes, you know, it does take a village of doctors, nurses, uh, ER physicians, ICU. There's a lot of coordination going through. Plus, if you also think of it, there's a lot of uh, additional components. So this is patient, these are cells that are aphorized, so they're collected from the patient. They're shipped, take several weeks to come back, uh, and they're reinfused to the patient. So there's also a lot of timing in between. So it's a lot of coordination. You mentioned before that, you know, rituximab certainly had its issues, and now it's kind of commonplace. Do you foresee that this will at some point become more commonplace or will you think it'll stay rooted in academic centers that have the resources to do it? I I think that probably if you think of stem cell therapy, I think the stay at quaternary centers like ours or, you know, I think there's, I don't think there's anything above quaternary center, but the clinic is probably something above quaternary, quaternary plus, right? And I would expect that there's, they're going to stay at academic centers or large, large hospitals where you have the complexity of the services in case something happens. But I think that the, there's going to be a transition towards you know, doing a brief stint in the hospital or even do it as an outpatient with frequent return visits. So transition towards an outpatient management. And, and as the products get better, which we are, we are already seeing it with a second iteration of drugs approved, they're slightly easier to give. You can't have outpatient management. The toxicities are better recognized that you're going to be able to manage them with, with less complexity actively and have that as a backup. So I think that probably the lifespan of the currently approved products is not going to be as long as we've been used to for our drugs that are you know approved for 20 years and they're the standard for 20 years. My suspicion is that 
new versions are going to come real quick. Like everything is accelerating. I think new, better versions are going to come sooner that are going to replace the standard. That's going to be a little bit safer, maybe more active. So, you know, approaching that silver bullet that we all try to get in, in, in oncology. Tell me a little bit about the, the agents that are um, what we call off the shelf, you know, so instead of using patients uh, cells and generating those, this, what do you see in terms of things coming along the line for that? There's two strategies there, at least the ones that I can mention. One of them is uh, doing allogeneics or doing donor-derived cells. And I think that using T-cells from donors that you can create a bank and expand and using them as a target, they, they require a little bit more extensive engineering because you need to remove like the MHC that recognizes tissue as foreign and only recognize that. So you only want them to target the tumor as a, as a foreign target. But there's been several studies going through and they're, I'd say probably they're not that far away from getting into the market or getting a little bit larger studies. And those will overcome a couple barriers. One of them is that you need to take the cells out of the patient and then manufacture them. So there's a little waiting time. So this will make it much quicker, faster to give to, particularly to our patients with lymphoma that sometimes are rapidly progressive or leukemia. And also will overcome some of the logistics with the, with the collection process itself that is also adds costs. So it may reduce the prices as well. Tell me about other types of cell therapies that you find exciting that are being developed. We think for sure beyond T-cells, uh, the other cell that can be used as an, as an off-the-shelf product that may have actually a better safety profile and may actually have uh, an enhanced anti-tumor effect is in K-cells. And I think they're lagging a little bit behind because they just don't grow as easily. They, they're a little bit harder to transfect, but NK cars are probably very close. We're about to have a, a study here at the clinic with an NK car product. But also combining NK cells with other agents like monoclonal antibodies is something that, that very likely can enhance. It's going to be a combination between immunotherapy and cell therapy. Um, the nice thing about NK cars is that they tend to be less inflammatory in their response and they tend to be kind of more purely anti-tumoral and and at the same time their persistence is less which it may allow us to avoid long-term side effects. You mentioned combinations with immunotherapies are there also um, combination trials or uh, considerations of things like chemotherapy in combination with cellular therapies? For sure and the one thing I didn't mention is that you actually need to give a little bit of chemo before, uh, not just because this is done by oncologists, but it's because even though these are autologous cells, you need to lymphodeplete the patient before. We do that with fludarabines and cyclophosphamide, so it's mostly lymphotoxic chemotherapy. Uh, some products can be given with uh, bendamustin before. So decreasing the, the, the or lymphodepleting the, the, the patient before permits so these cells that you reinfuse uh, to persist for a longer period of time. Um, but uh, you can combine these either CAR T cells with antibodies that can ideally promote their activity. There have been studies with PD-1s that haven't yet been successful, but I wouldn't be surprised that this is something that should be looked at once we enter the solid tumor world. Uh, and maybe other checkpoint inhibitors, right? There's not just PD-1, but there's, you know, like 3 and, and TIM as well. And there's several other markers that, that you can interfere upon where you facilitate the work of the T cell or you decrease the inhibitory effects that the tumor does against those T cells. What do you think are the biggest gaps 
What, what do we need to overcome to make that next big step? Well, price is one, right? Many of these products are extremely expensive. Uh, I think we need to figure out how to make this in a large scale and, and make it uh, faster, right? So time and time and money are always important. Even though it's not my personal specialty, I still think that harnessing the capacity to to target solid tumors will be important for every, everything else. I think once we learn how to target lung cancer, uh, sarcoma, for example, pancreatic cancer with immunotherapies um, and cell therapies will, will allow us to get the knowledge to be able to avoid resistance in lymphoma, for example. I think that the mechanisms are more complex and once you're coming for solid tumor you can probably use that for for lymphoma as well so certainly solid tumor is is the the biggest target and i think we're going to get there very good well paolo i appreciate uh, you being with us and all of your insights thank you for all you're doing and advancing this field thank you very much my pleasure this concludes this episode of cancer advances you will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash canceradvancespodcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our Consult QD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.